Today's episode of That Song from That Movie is coming up after this. Hi, I'm Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-time depression sufferer and caffeine fiend. In Not Before Coffee, I talk about everything from books, TV and movies to the more serious topics, like my own personal journey through life, struggling with various mental health issues. But not until I've had at least three mugs of the roasted bean and temporarily sated my long-term addiction. So, if you want to get to know more about me and all the ways I pass my time during the week, not including work, and you fancy the idea of hearing me talk about the things that interest me, new books, old books, TV and movies of all kinds, plus the weird and wonderful of my everyday, and how I got into writing about cars for a living despite not having a driving licence, then tune in to Not Before Coffee. Found where all good podcasts are, so pretty much everywhere. Hey, sisters, soul, sisters, better get ready for a full deep dive into Baz Luhrmann's 2001 hit movie Moulin Rouge, sisters, on today's episode of that song from that movie. Gitchy, gitchy. Yeah, yeah, da, da. Thank you for joining that song from that movie, The Journey Through the Very Best and Worst of Movie Songs. I am your bourgeois pig host, Dietrich, and as always, we're joined by a man with a huge talent, Alex. Full <laughs> of talent. So full of talent. Oozing talent. Raging talent. <laughs> <laughs> and we're also joined by a magnificent, opulent, tremendous, stupendous, gargantuan, bedazzlement, essential ravishment. He will be a spectacular, spectacular... Ben. Um, no more words. I can't believe I managed to do that in one take. I know, yeah, that was pretty yeah, impressive, well actually, yeah. Good billing for Ben, that. Yep, synonyms on show. I thought it was nice to both of you this time. Yeah, which, yeah. It's rare, rare, yeah. Is it myself? <laughs> or I called a pig? <laughs> <laughs> Opening segment, as always, what have you been watching this past fortnight? On the previous episode, I said I was going to go see The Batman, and I have now seen The Batman. Mm-hmm. How was The Batman? The Batman was good. I enjoyed it, yeah. Um, compared to other the Batmans, compared to the, well, compared to other the Batmans, it's the best the Batman. Okay, compared to other Batmans <laughs> instead, um, I would say I would say it's better than the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises. Not as good as Batman Begins. <laughs> not as good as Batman Forever. <laughs> so third, I'd put it third. My my nose is bleeding from just trying to follow that. It was going all over the place. It's a really good film. I think the problem with it is it's just so long mm. that it does drag in places. You can't have a, an over three hour long film and it be non-stop. Yeah, is it actually over three hours? It, um, it's either just over three hours, like three hours and a couple of minutes, or it's just, just shy. shy. It's like on the dot almost. See, that's that's it. That's difficult because there's always a time you're going to get hungry. Yeah, well, we right. walk straight over this car park to Nando's afterwards. Yeah, well, yeah. highlight of the day. But yeah, um, I really enjoyed it. But I do want to see it. I feel like it needs an intermission, and it feels like it has a natural place for it as well. <laughs> I don't know. Nothing needs. You don't need to spread out the time more. <laughs> Modern, you know, young people these days are needing breaks. Everything put in TikTok. You just bet you wish it was five minutes long. <laughs> what have you guys been watching then? It better not have any ad breaks in it. I, f- I finally watched Encanto. Really enjoyed it. Got bored of Peaky Blinders. Mm-hmm. I've given up on it now. Already? How far did you get into it? <laughs> I got like halfway through the third season. Yeah. 
Yeah, it gets shit. Um, and, well, I mean, t- yeah. it's, it's okay at the beginning. Like, it's like, yeah, I can see why this is popular. And then, and then it <laughs> I can see why this is popular. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then it quickly stops being. You, you quickly stop understanding it is, why it's popular. It, it was. It was one of those glass shattering moments where you said last week it's about the like the slow mos. My god, like the yeah. amount of slow mos in front of like roaring uh, like kilns yeah. is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a third of each episode, and that's not even really <laughs> yeah. a joke. That it's a third of yeah. each episode. Yeah, on the way to the garrison. To the garrison. It's like the modern day Baywatch. Yeah, Baywatch. I'd say it's worse. It's probably worse. It's probably worse than that. Yeah. I said the third. It's actually half the show in in a row as well. Annoyingly, tailored ads in the modern world. I keep getting adverts for like Peaky Blinders attire. Yeah, and who who wear? Please don't. People do just though, don't, don't they? People, no, people but do. just yeah, people don't. Definitely do. Just don't. It's obvious where you're getting it from. And even if you were doing it before, then you had other problems. <laughs> Alex, we ought to talk. Yes, so like you, you mentioned Encanto, and like last week I said, uh, yeah, I've not seen it yet. Since then, I think I've seen it double digits. <laughs> well, you're a big fan. So I'm a big fan. Yeah, that way around. Yeah, like yeah, literally it's like every morning, hey, watch Encanto. So I've seen it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's at least 10. I, I'd say I'd say it's probably much more closer to 20. But nice. I've only seen it in bits, <laughs> so like I'm only kind of half picking up the story. And uh, the songs are great. The story is is lacking somewhat. I think it, it yeah. it's uh, it feels like it was going one way, and then they just decided to like stop yeah. putting yeah. it that way, put it somewhere else, and and so none of it really makes too much sense. But you're kind of like, yeah, but I'm along for the, the song. The song they knew where they wanted to go to, and then realized about two thirds in, like, oh crap, how do we get there? Oh, yeah. just 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 say we're there, and it's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It just feels like everything just like wraps up without making much sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah, which I feel like is is what most people have been saying. It's like it's, the message becomes a lot very confused, doesn't it? <laughs> it just yeah, yeah. don't be perfect. The songs yeah. Yeah. are. I can see again. I can see why the songs are so popular. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to go to Casa Madrigal? Of course, yeah. Disney needs to get on that and build it somewhere. Yeah, we'll probably will. <laughs> Epcot's crying out for Epcot's, that. No, Epcot's, Epcot's crying out for a lot of things. This is the bit where I would introduce what the today's episode is, but I've written two of these, so you can decide which one I use. Okay. <laughs> so, with the release of Obi-Wan Kenobi on the horizon, <laughs> now seems like a good time to go back to Ewan McGregor's original Satine-related love story, Moulin <laughs> Rouge. Okay. Mm. And my other one is... To celebrate these terrible Trivago adverts with you and McGregor, we take a trip to Paris with, with Moulin Rouge. Love it, love it. Those adverts are so annoying. Right, yeah. They're, on, they're annoying. always on before YouTube videos, aren't they? That's what I've seen. Yeah. It's one of the worst taglines for a company. Hotel Trivago. It might not even be Trivago. That's how bad the adverts are. <laughs> is it? Yeah, I've, is I've, it Trivago? Dis- is it? Like, I don't watch TV anymore. Have you have you confirmed? It might be Expedia. I think it's Expedia. I think it is Expedia. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter because the adverts are terrible. It doesn't really matter, does it? Who cares? <laughs> yeah, they are annoying. So uh, to find out what was happening in the world when the movie came out. Time for some history. Yes, and the worldwide release of Moulin Rouge was in May 2001. So about 21 sure. years ago. Sure? Uh, sure? 100% sure, 100% sure. Don't look <laughs> it up, guys. Don't look it up. It's not the day I've got written down here. Uh, we, keep, we keep the news light here. We keep the news light uh, and very light. In fact, not so light, Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott punches a protester who threw an egg at him at the Ryle. Have we had this? We've had Incredible. this before, haven't we? Have we, we, have, we had May we 2001 before. What film? I wonder what film it was. I've no, I've got no memory, but I remember talking about May this. May 2001. Uh, it's weird, because I was going through the films from the time, and I don't remember seeing any that we'd done. Interesting. Maybe, <laughs> are we sure John Prescott's done just hit a lot of people? <laughs> <laughs> because that way, that may well be the case. He's an easy man to rile up. Yeah, he's an incredible punch, though. 
like the reaction yeah, speed yeah, yeah, from yeah. being hit with the egg to, to connecting them with the guys first. I do remember covering it again because I think we remember saying that he really didn't regret it. But yes, in, in other news, 15-year-old Sherpa Temba Cherry became the youngest person ever to climb Mount Everest. And I can't tell if it was at the same time or just afterwards, but Eric Weyenmayer was the first blind person to reach the summit of Mount Everest. So I don't know if that was just a, a weird sort of Guinness Book Records attempt. But I think when I was 15, I was still getting plastic caught on the bottom of the frozen pizza when I put it in the oven. <laughs> so, so, so was the implication there that a 15-year-old and a blind person climbed at Mount Everest together? Because if that, why is that it already It sounds like film? the start of a pun. <laughs> it sounds like the start of a joke, doesn't it? <laughs> it doesn't, right, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it does seem a bit odd. I don't know who was leading who. I'm assuming the Sherpa led him. <laughs> it seemed weird if it was the other way around. But yes, it was a busy time. Alex, what film do you prefer of these two that came out in May 2001? Yeah, go Shrek, on. or the very similar Mulholland Drive. <laughs> oh God, I would, I would like if I was doing a top uh, twenty, I probably would have both in there. So it's really difficult to, uh, to. I mean, I've seen Shrek more. But I, think, so. <laughs> I would assume. I don't think your, I don't think your child is yet asking every morning Mulholland Drive, please. <laughs> because if he yeah, is, I mean, you might need to go see a therapist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Mulholland Drive is not one of those films that can uh, warrant r- many repeated views. <laughs> Yeah, I also look forward to when we do the Shrek episode hearing the John Prescott news again. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll keep me Well, we, it is good to remember John Prescott. Uh, I wonder if the blind person was actually Ian Blunkett. That's around that time, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Yeah, yes. Oh, but he was. He was doing. He was doing other. He was, he was climbing mountains. He was climbing onto other things. I think. Anyway, a film that combines both comedy and tragedy is Moulin Rouge which is a musical romantic drama directed by Baz Luhrmann, starring the likes of Nicole Kidman, Ewan McGregor, Jim Broadbent, and Richard Roxburgh. For those unaware, the story follows Christian, a young poet who falls in love with the star of the famous cabaret, The Moulin Rouge. So this is a modern musical in that the majority of the songs are compositions, mashups, medleys of modern music of the time. There are two songs we will focus on in this podcast. Um, the original production, Come What May, and the song Lady Marmalade. But first of all, before we go into that, guys, what do you think of this film? Assuming you've both seen it or at least watched it recently. So I watched this movie for the first time ever in preparation for this recording. It's mad. Uh, I can't believe that. So I did go into the movie with some like preconceived notions I'd built over the 20 odd years. <laughs> How was those first that first 20 minutes, Dave? Well, you'd be glad to know that I broke down my thoughts into three sections based <laughs> cool, on the cool. time in the film. Great. Uh, so the first 10 minutes was a general feeling of, oh, right, this is not the tone I was expecting at all. It was far more frantic and camp. Mm-hmm. And I put in my brackets here, you know, the tragically ludicrous, the ludicrously tragic. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Bridges. You know, camp. <laughs> yeah, so it was far more camp than the sort of lovey-dovey rom-com that I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point in my notes, I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to like the, the overall movie or not. Then the next 20 minutes or so was me starting to warm up to it and start to actually enjoy mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Now that the wackiness wasn't a surprise to me, I was settling into it. But is it still wacky you know? at this point? Well, I think it is. Is it the bit after when they when Satine and Christian first meet, or are you still? Uh, is it still in the fever pitch? Like smells like Teen Spirit's blasting out, and Jim Broadbent staring you down, and really sort of making you feel intimidated. <laughs> so this is the bit where they've they've just met, and it's okay, building yeah, yeah, up yeah, to the, what it. I thought was the best bit yes. of the film. The bit where they air quotes ad lib the song for the Duke. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> like for this whole segment, I had a smile on my face. I was enjoying it. 
might have had too many beers at this point, but that's not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the rest of the movie happened. Yeah. Oh, okay. Following 80, 85 minutes, I don't know if a maths work out there, but it just stank the place out. <laughs> I know you're not, well, I'm not, I know you're not including Tango de Roxanne in that, in that conversation, do you? Yeah, please don't, be careful, because Alex is very, very <laughs> fragile about this discussion. <laughs> um, yeah, not specifically a particular song, no, but more, I thought that the overall frantic tone and uh, charming campness to the movie was dropped in favour of a romance angle I wasn't particularly invested in. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And eventually the movie sort of limped to a close and maybe wish I hadn't watched it in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of see that point, but I will probably disagree. But first, Alex. I mean, I love this film. I, I can't, <laughs> yes. I, 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 I don't know. I don't, I can't, like Ben said, I, I kind of get what you say, because I think the beginning of the film, the first half, is the part that really, like, does stand out. And like I say, I think it, if you've seen, like, other Baz Luhrmann films, like, things like Strictly Ballroom, I think yeah. is kind of yeah. what's in my head. It's like, it's definitely kind of on brand with that, and it's just a bit, like, zany and wild, and, like, you're not really sure what's going on, but you're kind of along for a crazy ride. Mm-hmm. Kylie Minogue's, for some reason, an absent fairy. Um, <laughs> yeah, the green fairy. It's, with the voice of Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. The voice of Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's just uh, it's all odd. I do think that they try to make it into more of a conventional romance towards the end, and uh, mm-hmm. maybe that is to the detriment of the film. And I think as well because they set up the tragic ending at the beginning, it's sort of like they have to f- try and fulfil on that somehow. They're really trying to build up that moment at the end, aren't they? When when he uh, sings back the song to her on the stage, and it's all uh, mm. really romantic, and then she dies from TV, and it's. <laughs> Yeah, dramatic. Um, for those who haven't seen it, sorry. Um, so yeah, and I feel like it's it's kind of odd because the beginning, the beginning sort of scene, like where he's like typing on the typewriter, like oh god, this is like it feels a bit Tim Burton esque, I guess. And it's all a bit like dreary and drab, and then obviously it's really excited, and then it kind of goes back to that place at the end, which is sort of odd because it does feel like a big downer at the end, but not in a sad kind of way. It's just like a a kind of it kind of raised you up. And then just sort of knocked you down in a kind of sad way, not in a dramatic way. Is there anything wrong with that though? Because that's the thing. I feel like if it would have gone to the, if it would have ended, you know, in a, and he realized that love is still in the world through reflection, he realized he was better off for the experience. When actually it's just like, now nah, it was, it was awful and I feel disgusting still. I, I kind of prefer that. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's more true to life. And yes. I think maybe that's kind of, it's this sort of magic realism almost isn't it that it's like yeah postmodernist. yeah i don't know because it's so exciting for a lot of the the opening part you do feel like you almost need to leave you feel like you earned like a happy ending almost so maybe maybe that's part of the subversion i know yeah well that's like the la la land effect isn't it like people want it to end like 10 minutes before it does (laughs) yeah i mean this is better than la la land let's the opposite really la la land i want the opening 10 minutes cut out (laughs) (laughs) i want i want like the the last two hours of la la land cut out of my mind i I won't have a bad thing said about la la land so let's move on (laughs) but yeah i mean i love the film i love the film i think it's great and i've seen it many many times so (laughs) because your son loves it Uh, yeah yeah. i i do love this film i don't think it could have kept that pace that it has at the start i think it's a good introduction to the moulin rouge of like oh it is this place of uh, seduction and fantastical dreams and imaginations come true and it's so weird and wonderful and Jim Broadbent <laughs> <laughs> it's so Jim Broadbent and then the songs yeah are really sort of in your face and explosive you know your song is with a bit more oomph and the elephant love medley and it's you know it's great in you need that sort of that second act where it does get more somber and the the stakes are risen and, and 
I think the film only suffers when it tries to flip tragedy and comedy too much. Like in the end where there's a scene, you know, when the guy's trying to shoot Christian on the stage uh, and it's supposed to be like the stakes are, you know, risen and they've shown each other their love. And there's a bit where they kick the gun away and it flies through the sky of Paris and hits the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, um, do, you, do you want me to Ten laugh? Gun. I don't, you know, I don't know what, what you're wanting me to feel really here. And I guess that might be postmodernism again. It's trying to just throw every every convention out of the way. Uh, and I do like Milan Rouge for doing that. But I think sometimes its best parts for me is when the the editing isn't constant. He does cool things in the, with slow motion or some like um, the Brian De Palma thing where you have two shots side by side so you can see foreground and background with the same clarity. It does really cool things, mm. Baz Luhrmann. But my general criticism of Baz Luhrmann is that he does them too often and too much. And I think sometimes you can just let it breathe. When rewatching it like two nights ago, I felt like I needed to get my inhaler after the first 15 minutes. I'm like, bloody hell, what's going on? But yes, the film at the time was a critical and commercial success, unsurprisingly. It grossed $121 million worldwide, and it currently holds a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty good. So most critics, similar to what we were saying, praised its energy, confidence, and the combination of humour and tragedy. And since there's quite a lot of analysis I think a lot of people analyze this film in like film school because of the postmodernist element, you know, compared to films like Blade Runner, Pulp Fiction, that break typical convention, whether that's narrative or style editing films of the time. Um, I don't know if it's at the level of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I don't really know what is. <laughs> no, it's a bit more linear than that. <laughs> Just a tad, yes. But it is quite cool, I think, in that. And I, I don't know, Baz Luhrmann, do you like his films in general? I, this, I think this is his only good one. I don't mind Romeo and Juliet. I did not like Great Gatsby. Australia is is, 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 a, bit, you is did, a bit all right. Have you seen Strictly Ball? Yeah, I want Mad Keen on it. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it since what? I was about 18. That's <laughs> well, It's been a long time. Of all the films you've said, I've only seen Romeo and Juliet. I think um, Great Gatsby's decent. It's not as good as the original. The soundtrack's pretty cool. I think... Yeah, I think I think again he tried to do something interesting with it. It's very battling. Australia, I've never seen, but always yeah. kind of wanted to be because I'm just curious about what it is. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like just like a swing, almost like Gone with the Wind epic, you know, sort of like lots of staring off into the into the sunset and just contemplating my existence for four hours. Sounds good. I think to be fair, just how you're saying it's very Baz Luhrmann. I think if you get to that level as a director, when you can say something is very you, I think you've kind of made it. Or at least you've broken convention enough where you've got your own style. And I think Baz Luhrmann is one of those people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. He said a lot of the film inspiration came from Bollywood pictures. So apparently he was researching Midsummer's Night Dream in India. He said he wanted to move away from the perceived cool of films at the time. But he also took a lot of inspiration from French opera. La Bohème, La Traviata, Orpheus in the Underworld. A lot of Greek inspiration. He throws a lot at the board. I don't think all of it sticks, but... He's throwing so much. A lot of it's sticking, and it looks like a very weird um, colour palette once he's finished with it. He has said that he would not change anything. I think you're slightly wrong there, Baz. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, do you want some quick-fire trivia? Yeah. Yes. The necklace worn by Nicole Kidman was made from real diamonds and was expected to cost around $1 million. 1,308 diamonds. But why? Okay. <laughs> it feels unnecessary. One thing you realise from Baz Luhrmann, he likes expensive fashion. Likes extravagance. I think he's done a lot of productions for Anna Winter. Do you know who Anna Winter is? Yeah, Anna Wintour, you mean? Anna Wintour's fine. Well, yeah, she, to be fair, she would probably cut my head off for that. Um, he is known as 
making the most expensive advert. I don't know if it still is, but it was at the time for Chanel number five. Now, I, I sent this to you guys. Uh, do you remember this advert? Mm-hmm. Of course I remember this advert, Ben. Yeah. It has the Brazilian Tom Cruise, Rodrigo Santoro. <laughs> is he the guy from Love Actually? Because I was like, that ah, that's what he was from. I couldn't remember. Him. Yes, it is. Or more known as Paolo from Lost. Oh, it's Paolo from Lost okay. as well. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Well, well, you don't like Paolo from Lost. <laughs> it's a great episode. <laughs> that is a swanky advert. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's great. Well, it's, it's essentially the same plot as the Moulin Rouge, isn't it? <laughs> Which is what, it, yeah. Nicole Kidman clearly had um, had a good relationship with them. And to be fair, that is one thing about this. It must have been awkward as heck to film this with some of the things that he was asking them to do. So credit to all the actors. They really went for it. You know, it could have been, it could have really fallen flat, uh, especially because Ewan McGregor's ability to hold a tone is quite hard. But hey, <laughs> I did actually put in my notes that I thought it was a ballsy move from Baz Luhrmann to pitch a musical of sorts where, for the most part, the actors can't sing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is. is it's interesting. I mean, it? like a lot of it's justified in universe. Like Ewan McGregor's a writer. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Whatever yeah, yeah. Jim Broadbent's character was called, it's just the owner of the Moulin Rouge. <laughs> like, yeah, which, yeah. Although he has a pretty good voice, he is probably the best singer of the film. I don't think it's his voice. Oh man, don't ruin it for me, Ben. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's not his voice. One thing that's weird about it is that it's like. They're almost quite good, aren't they? All of them. They're almost <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. O- they're okay. It's not like they're really bad, so that's a comic side to it, or like they're talking it. They kind of they they can all sort of sing. Yeah. Oh, but my god, can you and McGregor look it off into the distance while singing? <laughs> He's got a golden face in this, hasn't he? With his mouth incredibly open. Yeah. I also thought the editing was a bit odd in when they were singing because you could tell there was a conscious disconnect between the actual person singing and the recorded vocals you could hear. Oh, do you think? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. It, it wasn't like, for example, Les Mis, where you, I know it was all filmed at the same time and it feels like it's in the scene. But like every time Ewan McGregor did his massive mouth thing, I could tell it wasn't him actually making that noise at that moment. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right with that, definitely. I think I think that kind of adds to the surreal, sur- surreality of it, surreality of it, of the scenes though. That it's kind of like you can see clearly that he isn't singing it, but that's kind of kind of works in this, I think, because it's sort of because yeah. it's kind of so weird and campy anyway. It's sort yeah, of yeah. it's like it's almost like it's karaoke. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> it feels yeah, like yeah. it's that kind of vibe. But... It's a bit pub singery. Yeah, most of the songs are covers anyway, especially the elephant uh, medley mix or whatever it's called in the middle. Elephant love medley. Yeah, the elephant love medley. Um, yeah, so it's. I think it kind of adds to it, but I definitely agree with you. It definitely is a disconnect there. The other reason it's odd that Hugh McGregor is in this film is because, like, not like a few years before he was in Trainspotting, it's quite the difference in films. But I think I read once that Leonardo DiCaprio auditioned for this because he was obviously in Romeo and Juliet with Baz Luhrmann, which was before this, wasn't it? I think just before. Yes. Yeah. 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 So this ends his. It was a trilogy. I forget the name of it. But Strictly Ballroom, Romeo and Juliet, and then Moulin Rouge is considered like a trilogy in his, a bit like the Cornetto trilogy. Red Carpet trilogy. Red Carpet trilogy, there you go. Right, okay. And uh, I think he auditioned for this, and like it was like it was going to be him in the film. But then they were like, oh, they realised he just couldn't sing. But I was like, but then Hugh McGregor can't really sing, so it's kind of... <laughs> but he can kind of, It's not. he's not got like any, um, yeah, he's not got any fluctuation, he just kind of belts it, and he can kind of hold it, it doesn't kind of break, and that's about he, it. Yeah, he can really belt or slash shout a loud, a long note. Oh my god, he does. I, that, which is the only thing that breaks me from it, you know, when someone's singing, like, 
like three inches from your face and he just blasts <laughs> it. You almost expect them to like like close their eyes or wipe the spittle from their cheeks. I can't imagine what the audio booth was like because he must have been it must have been some volume because it feels like they've just quietened it, doesn't it? I would love to see Nicole Kidman pretending to smile as Ewan McGregor's trying to shout your song by Ellen John. But it's kind of weird because she has such well we're probably gonna go in this one some, but she has quite a delicate singing voice yeah, and he's yeah, just like yeah. blasting it out in her face. It's quite amusing. Very much. So. My, uh, yeah. my wife sort of didn't particularly like the film, but she loved the soundtrack and used to listen to it as a teenager. And uh, she was saying that once her dad walked in and was like, who is this singing? And it was Ewan McGregor singing Elton John. And he sort of went, hmm. Turns out Elton John's a very good singer. <laughs> and just walked off. <laughs> Wiping his hand. Brilliant. Love it. Take that, Ewan. Now, we've already hinted at this next fact, but it was originally supposed to be Ozzy Osbourne as the Green Fairy. Yeah. Was it not? It was supposed to be Ozzy Osbourne, but then <laughs> they only used his voice because uh, I don't know specifically why they went for Kylie Minogue or Kylie Minogue. Um, <laughs> very niche reference there. I, I don't know why. Maybe because, I don't know, seeing Ozzy Osbourne in your uh, drunken fever dreams might not be the most <laughs> seductive of scenes. But yes, his uh, guttural scream when the fairy turns evil was still used. Uh, so, you know, he still gets that credit. Okay, so there was two soundtracks released for this film. There is that many songs in it that there was the Moulin Rouge music from Baz Luhrmann's film and the same title, Volume 2. Now, Baz Luhrmann is heavily involved in the production elements of his, of the albums and soundtracks from his movies. He creates the songs and he tries very hard to buy a lot of songs he knows specifically. Very much like when we talked about um, Quentin Tarantino, um, I know Edgar Wright's very much like this, that he wants very specific songs for very specific scenes. I know he tried... Now, I'm not the biggest Cat Stevens fan. Alex, do you know Cat Stevens well? Yes, I know his work. Cat Stevens would not license... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got that one. Cat Stevens would not license the song Father and Son. Right. You know that one? Yeah, well, obviously, yeah. And and, uh, not only by (laughs) Cat Stevens, but the duet between Yousef Cat Stevens and Ronan Keaton, which... Oh, right. (laughs) But there was also a Boyzone version as well, so I think that's why the collaboration came. (laughs) This was supposed to be the first musical song in the original script. But he wouldn't because of his his religious beliefs. He wouldn't give it to the film. I guess maybe because of the themes in the film, he objected to the sexual content. Okay, though. So I don't know what he was replaced by. Um, but he generally got all the other songs that he wanted. We hear things like "Like a Virgin," "Roxanne," "Smells Like Teen Spirit." The Elephant Love Medley has about eight or nine songs in it. Um, he <laughs> almost didn't get "Smells Like Teen Spirit" because he hired. You know, everyone's favourite individual, Marilyn Manson, to sing the song, which made Courtney Love very angry as she and Manson at the time had a long-standing feud. <laughs> like, at the time, it was long-standing. <laughs> <laughs> the two people that I imagine have a lot of feuds with a lot of people. Yeah. So, yeah, she evoked the performer approval clause in her contract, so it forced production to find an unknown band to re-record the song six days before the movie opened. Well, yeah, six days? So, yeah, six days. Imagine that. Because, you, yeah, you've got to push that out for a lot of people. So, yes, it's some unknown band. 
so they'd, they'd essentially recorded the film, they'd made the film, the film was ready to be released, but with the Marilyn Manson version, yes. and then they had to, I guess that must be really difficult, because they'd have had to time it, like, perfect, unless, yeah. the, unless the, the version in the film, I can't quite remember what it sounds like, is really, like, on tempo with the original, and so they just... Well, it's just of, very, very, uh, uh, it's not grungy, it's just very basic rocky. Yeah. But there's so much going yeah. on over the top of it, I think it's very hard to see it. I imagine they use probably some stuff from the Marilyn Manson version in it. Um, in total, across those two albums, there's 28 songs. That's quite a lot. Yes, too many. <laughs> well, some would say that, yeah. But during the fever dream that does include the songs such as Smells Like Teen Spirit is also Lady Marmalade. So this is a song originally written by Bob Crew and Kenny Nolan and was originally performed by the American R&B group LaBelle. This song is generally quite a famous song, mostly for the sexually suggestive line, voulez-vous coucher avec moi, which means, do you want to sleep with me? I'm assuming we were all aware this was a cover, yes? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, 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 good. So yeah, it was a huge hit, the version by LaBelle. It was number one in the US as of last year, put in the Library of Congress in the US for being culturally, historically, and artistically significant. So it's a big song. But what do you guys think of the general song before we go into the film version? I mean, it's it's, it's an absolute anthem. <laughs> it's an anthem. I mean, the, <laughs> the version that every, that pretty much everyone in our generation knows is the version from the film. Yes, I think it is. That yes, it is. It's great. I think, I think most people would know that it was originally a song. But the songs are quite different, though, aren't they? I mean, because obviously in the newer version... Incredibly. They have like their own like sections, <laughs> yeah. which is great. Which is what makes it amazing, mm. obviously. Yep. But yeah, I, th- I feel like the original version kind of the only the only similarity is that kind of main line from memory. I can't quite remember. I didn't re-listen to the old. The, uh, yeah, most of the lyrics are the same. The only obvious lyrical difference is instead of saying is it misdemeanor here. <laughs> no, just get rid of the Missy Elliott bits and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> and the little Kim bit, yeah. And the little Kim bit. Yeah, it's, it's the bit where it's like it says New Orleans, doesn't it? It says like, New Orleans instead of Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Uh, right, right, right. So it's the opening line, remember the night down in old New Orleans or Moulin Rouge? That's the main difference. Um, but I think in general, when I hear this song on the radio, it's the LaBelle version. Probably speaks to what radio stations you're listening to. You, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> what, what radio stations do you listen to? Smooth. It's this version. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> Kiss FM. Uh, yeah, way. yeah. Kiss history. Kiss, yeah, yeah kiss history. Kiss history, come on. Kiss history. It was an anthem for a long time. It got to number one in multiple countries. And it has had other covers. So I did not realise that the girl group All Saints released the cover of this song. And it got <laughs> to number one in the UK. Just did, did it? three years. Yeah, it got to number one just three years before the uh, Moulin Rouge version. Now, were you aware that All Saints covered this? I wasn't. I wasn't original. When when you sent me the message though, I I was like, yes, I remember. I remember seeing it before. So I but I like if you if someone had said name someone who's done a cover of this, I probably wouldn't have said it was all saints. But <laughs> I, when she said it, I was like, I remember. I remember. No one's no one when, they, when they're ever asked a question that they don't know the answer to would guess all saints. <laughs> That's just a fact. They're about they're about fifteen or twenty in the girl group discussion. But they did also do a weird cover of like Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers, didn't they? So I think they did like a few, quite a few covers at the time. Yeah, well, I, w- I was just thinking, surely I would have heard of this song if it got to number one. So I just checked on Wikipedia, and it was a double A side with Under the Bridge. Oh, with uh, Under the Bridge. Okay. Yeah, that's the version. That's the song I remember them doing more than this. Yeah, that's the song I remember. Have you listened to this version? Not recently. <laughs> yeah, I did when you sent it through and told me to listen to it. <laughs> D- well, what do you what do you think, D? Oh, it was awful. It is, isn't it? It's really bad. <laughs> The, the bit where they tried to sing 
the Devulu Kushevik Moir, but out of sync with the song. W- w- whose idea was that? I can't even do it because it's so out of sync. It's like, Vule, Vu. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful. Yeah. The weird rap bit doesn't work. Which is weird because this weird rap doesn't work, but we're about to talk about a song that has a weird rap bit that actually does work. Maya. Um, oh, no, yeah. look him. I know, but I just like to say <laughs> Maya. Yes, the version we're talking about, the one from the Moulin Rouge, is performed by the combination of Christina Aguilera, Maya, Pink, Call and... Call Supergroup. <laughs> okay, Supergroup, for the one song. <laughs> Christina Aguilera, Maya, Pink, and rapper Lil' Kim, and kind of um, introduced by Missy Elliott. I don't know, she is also... She's not considered like one of the singers. Yeah, she's basically... It is bookended, ended. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she's credited with sort of writing the song. Um, as in this version, alongside her usual collaborator. What do we think of this particular version? The song that is used in the film, if you've got a thought on that. And, most importantly, the video. <laughs> Quite a lot of stuff there to cover. Go. So, yeah, I like the song for all the same reasons that I like the 20 or so minutes of the movie. It's camp, it's over the top and tinged with an air of crap that makes it fun to sing along to. I wouldn't stick this on my headphones to listen to whilst I'm doing the washing up. But if I'm in a nightclub and this song comes on, you best believe I'm on that dance floor (laughs) singing along, (laughs) doing the sort of uh, Christina uh, hand thingy like like she's in a library moving books around. Uh, (laughs) I know you can't see what I'm doing because this is an audio podcast, but just imagine me sort of stocking shelves in a supermarket. That was a really good description. I can really visualise it. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll imagine it. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, given I thought the the movie on a whole was, well, a bit of a stinker in totality, I sort of feel like the music video for this sells a better movie than the movie Moulin Rouge. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> if the movie had just been like this quartet of different style singers all doing zany covers whilst yeah, yeah. Jim Broadbent was replaced by Missy Elliott, that's a better film. <laughs> I don't agree with that. <laughs> no, no, it's um, it's uh, it was a video that stuck in the mind of a of a young boy. That is all I shall say. Um, it's true. Hi, Future Dietrich here. So you might be thinking, I wonder what Alex thinks of Lady Marmalade. Well, apparently our robot overlords didn't want you to hear that because we've lost this bit of the recording. But rest assured, he likes the song a lot and uh, just pretend he made some witty jokes about it along the way. Now I hand you back to Ben in the past. It's one of those things, it's quite interesting, and I feel it's very typical of press junkets. At the time, they all said they really got on with each other, and it was so amazing to work with these, you know, incredible, um, like, behemoths of the time of the, you know, of the musical industry. And then later on, they said, yeah, we didn't get on. Yeah, it was very competitive. Uh, Pink was uh, hassling me while I was singing my part. Things like this. Uh, I don't know if that's very pink. I don't know. That seems out of character in my head. Critics' reviews of this song were mixed at the time. They thought it was cluttered, gaudy, god-awful, things like that. Audiences enjoyed it. Um, so I don't know if that's what people consider mixed by critics and that half of the, that the audience liked it. I think the biggest sort of marker of the impact of this song is that Patti LaBelle, when she sings it now, sings Moulin Rouge. Oh, really? Rather than New Orleans. Apparently so, yes. They performed it live together at the, I think it was the 2002 Grammys. Uh, they only ever performed it live twice together. And now she uses those lyrics. And she says she really thinks about the the version almost as theirs as well, just because of how they did it, um, which is a pretty big honour, I'd say. Yeah, I wonder if that's her taking that version because when her audience used to sing it back to her, they would sing the wrong version. <laughs> yeah, probably singing Milan Rouge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Own it, own it. 
So the second song we're talking about today is the original song, Come What May, composed by David Beervald and Kevin Gilbert for the film Moulin Rouge. So this one is performed by Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor. There is no other version beforehand. There has been many versions since, and some of them are quite interesting. But yeah, first off, guys, what do you think of this? So this is the only original song that is in the film. I I love this song. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying it like that. <laughs> <laughs> you almost hes- you almost hesitate. It's because I feel like I probably shouldn't, because it is a bit schmaltzy. But every time I listen to it, I'm like, it's just such a it's just such a chew. <laughs> but it's like it's neither of the, like I said, neither of them can sing amazingly, and it's kind of more prominent in this than maybe it is in the film because there's less distraction, especially when it's on like hits uh, TV channel or uh, Magic or whatever <laughs> back in the day, the yeah. box, yeah, um, TMF Music Factory. Um, God, yeah. I don't know, it's just something about it. It just just gets me. It just gets me. Is you and McGregor's singing making it achievable or attainable? For maybe, maybe that's it because I feel like probably that's where my voice is on par with. It's probably on par with you and McGregor's, so I feel like I can hit, <laughs> I can hit that song. But yeah, it's uh, I don't know. I just like it. Obviously, because I think in the film version, which again we might come on to in a second, it's not the full song, is it? No, uh, it, it has been a while since I watched it. But at the end, where she kind of sings it to him really quietly, and then he starts singing it back. That's that was my recollection yeah. of when it featured in the film. Yes. Yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I just like it. I don't really have much more to say. It's, it's kind of a very conventional sort of love song. I You're think a conventional it, kind of guy, Alex. Yeah, sometimes I am. That's sometimes in that conventional kind of mood. I don't know if the film would have been better if it had all been a musical. It's kind of an odd, isn't it? That it's, it's sort of, it's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a mashup of all sorts of random different pop songs, and then there's just a lead single. So it would have been interesting to see what what the film would have been like if it was just an all out musical. Maybe it would have been it would have done even better, you know, in the 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 realms like things like the Greatest Showman, etc. Um, which in, in a way it's kind of it's kind of similar to. I guess the Greatest Showman probably owes a lot to this film. But um, yeah, I like it. I don't know what Dee's opinion of it will be. It's it's really odd. It was really <laughs> odd at the time just seeing like you McGregor and, and Nicole Kidman in the in the music charts. But yeah, love the song. It's changing every time. I don't mind this song. I do like this song. I love it. He's very worried about what I'm about to say. I, I just don't think that you... I don't know. I just don't think it'll be your, your, your street day, but go. So, uh, yeah. I'll go on, preface this by saying that despite watching the movie only like two days ago, before we did this recording, I did have to search on YouTube to remind me what song this actually was from the title. Like, I remembered in terms of its use, like, I know it was the, the Secret Lovers song. And it's the one that performed at the end, but I just couldn't remember how it actually went. Yes. And when I listened to it back, it was like, oh, that's why. Because it's it's not even really a song when you hear it in the film. Yeah. And I guess as a reminder for the audience, if they're trying to figure out what song we're referring to, it's the one where Ewan McGregor just fucking screams, come what may, over and over again. <laughs> just at the top of his lungs. While looking, wait, 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 while looking off really seductively into the distance. That's true, yeah. His his eyes are singing better than his voice. It's very obvious because of how <laughs> focused he is. It's not Nicole. <laughs> it's definitely looking off into the sunset with the glow on his face. His face is so golden in this film. The sepia is yeah, on yeah. fire in this scene. <laughs> There's so much sepia. It is an Instagram filter, this film. Yeah. This scene. So, so for, for that reason, I don't even know if we can, uh, if I can sort of critique it as a song because the version we hear isn't really a song. Well, there is there is a song version on the soundtrack, which is different to this. Okay, well, I'd be intrigued to hear that version. I assume it's Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman still. It is, yes, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. there's just more lyrics. There might be a bit more tonality to that. Mm, I don't know. There's, there's, I guess, there's slightly (laughs) there's a there's a slightly more studio feel 
shall I say. I think in the film, there's kind of a um, musical part, like an interlude, whereas in the uh, soundtrack version, there's just more lyrics. Yeah, there's a lot. And, and then it's the kind of they flipped around, are they? The lyrics don't add anything. Yeah. You know, it'd be, it'd be better if it would be better if it added a twist into something like, oh gosh, I need to uh, keep taking these pills or else they'll wake up from this dream or something like that. And you're like, what? <laughs> what? Something like that. <laughs> I, I, do, I do think that the, the moment in the film when the song appears is kind of. It's powerful. I think, like you said, it is, is odd that he's just screaming, come on me, <laughs> at the stage. But <laughs> I don't think that does the song justice because I feel like when you hear the song in its own right, it's 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 quite a powerful number to be in it. Yeah, which is why I said it. I feel like it's a bit unfair to sort of bash it, saying, "Oh, it's not a very good song." When the, the version of the film is more of a sort of an outburst of love than it is an actual yeah. song that you would listen to. Yes, I think as yes. well in the actual studio version, the opening verse is sung by Ewan McGregor, but it's actually it's quite it's not shouting it. <laughs> and I think that probably again improves the song <laughs> quite a lot. He's he surprises you when he's about to shout. When he performs your song by Elton John, there's a bit when he says green and and blue, and he proper belts it. When actually, I guess in the you know the original Elton John version, it's almost spoken word. It's very soft at parts. Yeah. It catches you off guard, which is why I, I think it'd be better if Nicole Kidman just jumped. <laughs> it would have fit with the tone of the film. But yeah, <laughs> off your point, D. I was thinking, I was like, is this? Because I think it's a fine song. I think because the film is littered with such classic songs. They're the ones I remember. Like, I don't think this song is powerful enough. Yeah, it was always going to be difficult for it. Yeah, it basically it was always going to be difficult. I think that's the problem. You you can't take some of the most famous, biggest hits of the last sort of twenty years, you know, pre two thousand and one, and expect this to sort of like just fit in there very nicely just and just rub your shoulders. Against, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the difficulty. <laughs> that is a big, big problem. But I wanted to see if looking at other performances of this song of people that can sing does it make it a better song and i'm still not convinced like there's a few so i listened to a really sort of operatic version by Catherine jenkins and placido domingo Ooh. so proper you know it was on their album this is christmas well it's not but okay fine but the best version now i've listened to about eight versions i listened to one from glee um, I listened to one by Il Devo. Do you remember Il Devo? Famous yeah. for yeah. being on GMTV every week. <laughs> I listened to a version. Now get this. Alfie Bo, everyone's favourite. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. come on. Is Michael Ball also involved? Uh, Michael Ball has okay. done a version of this and I have, I have listened not together. to that one. Well. No, but not together. No, not together. At they, last. They, they perform, they, isn't that their album? They've got... <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, Alfie Bo yep. and Melcy. Oh, <laughs> now I no, stumbled upon this completely that. by accident. So on the Wikipedia, there was a theatre performance for um, Alfie Bo and Kerry Ellis. Now both, you know, big sort of like you know musical singers. Looking at it on YouTube, comes up with Mel C. Does not work. <laughs> the voices, the voices of Alfie Bo and Mel C. You know, great voice. Just doesn't. You know, it's chalk and. Um, I don't know, not cheese, but because it's not that bad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, chalk and a very thin piece of chalk. But yeah, I've come to the conclusion that no, it's not a good song. And That's we'll leave it at that. Sorry, Alex. One trivia I have for this. The song takes its title from a phrase that originates from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Alex, do you know the line? Um, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, he says, come what Is may. Where he says, come what may. <laughs> yeah. 
was, I was, I was hoping that you'd actually think, but you did. He kind of got the joke. That's all he says. Uh, <laughs> but yes, it got it eighth in the charts. Should have been higher. in Australia. In Australia, yeah, it okay. got to number twenty-seven in the charts. But that brings me nicely onto my top five. Top five. I was thinking, you know, you and McGregor, Nicole Kidman. Neither of them can sing. But what actors, regardless of their singing ability, have gotten top 10 singles in the UK? So there's not many, but I want to know, can you name five actors or actresses that have had top 10 singles in the UK? There is crossover, because like someone like Will Smith, for instance. Yeah, no, not counting not counting Will Smith. Right, okay. Artist first. Okay. Yeah, because similar like J-Lo, for instance. I mean, some people will say she probably never acted during her career. Yeah, but... no, can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the girlfriend, never, no, no. Well, I mean, surely in a bit of uh, synergy, we have to say Kate Winslet's cover. Yeah, well, I was thinking that, but well I don't think that done. got to the... Oh, well it did. No, it got to number six. Okay. It got to number six in the UK yeah. charts. Yes. What if? How's that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what. Go listen to that episode, guys. Um, Richard E. Grant. Uh, no, he's not. I did not see him mentioned on anything. So if I've missed Richard, <laughs> sorry. I know you're listening. Bill Nye. Oh yeah, no, no. What? It didn't get to top. It didn't get in the top ten. Apparently, flag on the play. <laughs> Big clue. What are we talking about? Oh, this. You and McGregor. No, Nicole no. Kidman. Something saying something stupid with Will. With there Lovely you go. Leans. That's two. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Well done. No clues at all to help you off there. I mean, Kylie Minogue really was an actress first. Yeah, Jason yeah. Donovan. Well. Yeah, Dolan. I know, but I think she's more. Uh, she is a pop star. Oh, Robson and, and Jerome, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Robson and Jerome is technically counts, yes. Yeah. Hodl and Waddle were on TV before being singers? <laughs> no. <laughs> Strangely, I did not what see... About, what oh. about, like, the Teletubbies or Bob the Builder? Or... <laughs> now you're really pushing out. Big stars, actors. Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep? What I don't know, from oh, Mamma Mia? Mamma Mia. Yeah. No, no, I didn't get stopped in there. No. What about well, Hugh Jackman? Um, no, because he got in the top. He got album. It's not single. Uh, what's his face? Uh, <laughs> Vanessa Hudgens and um... Zac Efron. No, nope, you're really pushing the uh, the star out. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So these really like really huge stars. I'd say so. Yeah. So does like Olivia Rodrigo count? No, I'm no. trying to think of like. You might need to go a bit further back. Oh god, Christopher Walken. <laughs> I like it. I like the reference. No, right. I guess I'm gonna have to throw some clues at you because you're uh, doing right. your. It's really, well, it's okay. really hard because it just got it's just so open. Barbara okay. Streisand. No, <laughs> no. Actor from Die Hard. Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis has a top ten single. Yes, his version of Under the Boardwalk reached number two in the Ooh. UK. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> now go and listen. Go and listen. To <laughs> like the sounds of the hat. <laughs> no, no one did. Okay, right. Big star in the seventies. Into you can probably count them as musicals. One huge. Oh, musical. John John Travolta. John Travolta. There you go. Yes, yeah. his song with Olivia Newton-John. You're the one that I want. That was number one for a long time. Okay, I've got another two that I want you to try and guess. Go on then. A western. Oh, Clint Eastwood. No, no other one. Oh, uh, Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin. Yes, Lee Marvin. Oh, yeah. yeah, from Penny Wagon, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he got his one hit in the UK. <laughs> And he actually, Alex, is a fact, he kept Let It Be from number one. <laughs> no, that's not true. Sure, is that true? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm based on some random... Oh my God, I just realised what website I got this from, D. Smoothradio.com. <laughs> we, like to, we like to come in circles on this podcast. Uh, and the other one, with the song She's Like the Wind. 
Oh my god, it's a uh, thingy from Dirty Dancing. Patrick Swayze. She's like the wind to my That's always on Smooth Radio. <laughs> that is, there you go. Maybe these are just songs that are on Smooth Radio. I think you could turn on Smooth Radio and within three songs you will have She's Like the Wind. It's such a good song though. Or a Phil Collins Wait, song. Yeah, look it up because apparently um, Wondering Star kept Let It Be off the yeah. number one spot. What a fact. But you, yeah, I, um, I'd give that rating a C-. minus. For Mel C. <laughs> well, I'd give your top five a D. Right, cool. <laughs> so I'm improving, I'm improving. Okay, so uh, it's now time for movie or song. Alex can go first to try and pick what that means for this episode. <laughs> uh, ooh, I mean, I love both. I really love both. Both being, which song you're referring to? Here? No, I mean the film and the song. Come on, me. Sorry. I mean, I also love Lady, right. Ma- Lady Marmalade. I think I'd have to say film because I just, the film, I've got so much nostalgia for the film. But that is kind of wrapped up in the song. Oh, yeah, I'll say film. It, but it really is tearing me apart to, to uh, remove Come On Me from, uh, from my world. <laughs> <laughs> what if it meant removing you and McGregor from your entire world? Well, I mean, I could never do that. I could never watch the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> it's Moulin Rouge with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a very sort of last action hero. You know, he goes back and it's someone else. Yeah, is it me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Moulin Rouge, it, it's a good film. You know, I will Great watch it again film. probably in about 20 years and think similar things to what I thought now my heart will probably be able to take less and less of it as I get older. Like it might, the first 20 minutes of this film might be the thing that kills me. But uh, if I can get through that, I will enjoy the Maybe rest that's of what it. happened to Nicole Kidman in this film. So exhausted by the first time. She might have been. Yeah, that was it. It wasn't, it wasn't consumption. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was just breath back from Ewan McGregor. Yeah, it was like of oxygen because Ewan McGregor was taking it all. <laughs> he was taking it all. <laughs> You do not need you do not need Lady Marmalade or Come Up Me in this film. You don't. <laughs> I mean, you don't, Ben. Come on. You don't truly believe that. Uh, no, I don't truly believe that. I would also pick the film in the sense that I can watch the first 30 minutes and then turn it off. Oh, well, why don't we just take it in turns, Steve? You can, like, tap me in once the first 30 minutes are gone, and I'll watch That them. seems like a good deal. Like a tag team. I, so, <laughs> a second, the best bit of the film ends, like, the pitch. Oh, wait, does that mean you get the elephant movement? Uh, I think that's just afterwards, isn't it? Cool, I'll take it. Deal. Virtual handshake. Oh, been absolutely done there, dude. Um, have I? You cannot lose the elephant love medley in a negotiation. <laughs> that is poor. Discussion 101. That brings it into another episode of that song from that movie. Let us know which one you prefer, the movie or the song, on Twitter. Ben, what is our Twitter handle? At TSFTMPod. Nice. So you can help the podcast in many ways. One of those ways is on Reddit. But Alex, what random subreddit should they pick this week? Obviously, it's the Lee Marvin subreddit. Oh, yes. Yeah. But don't share it with Paul McCartney. No. <laughs> so you can also help the podcast by signing up for our Patreon, buying our merch, or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcast: Spotify, iTunes, a third place. <laughs> Borders. Borders? As in the old shop. The old bookshop. Or like international borders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just go to like a neighbouring country and start screaming about the podcast. That's less that's topical. That's topical. Yeah. Make podcasts. No war. <laughs> so all that's left now is to do some goodbyes. So it's goodbye from myself. Goodbye. And goodbye from Alex. Roxanne, you don't have to wear that dress tonight. <laughs> and goodbye from Ben. Uh, wear sunscreen, guys. <laughs> oh, you didn't talk about it. I know, but we'll talk about it another time, I'm sure, when we talk about his other films. It was so weird. So, goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Walk the streets for money. You don't care if it's wrong or if it is right. Roxanne.
Hi there, post-credit listeners. What follows now is a load of sounds from when Leeds United were playing at the same time as the podcast. <laughs> I love it. Just while we do, have you guys seen what's happening in Leeds? Yeah, I just have seen it. I don't know. Well, it was one all. They've just scored. They've scored in the 92nd minute to equalise. Oh my god. Really? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. What for the winning as well. Oh dear. Oh my god. Oh dear. We're going down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've, I've I've like been slyly oh, looking at the score God. for the, like, the last ten minutes. Just been like, come on, come on, eager it towards the end, and then I just saw that it changed to one one run last second. Oh, God. Yeah. oh dear. A few moments later, Leeds have just scored. Uh, no, they haven't. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> actually scored. Oh my God. No, uh, I can't. No, don't accept it yet. Just in case. no. Just in case. Just, uh, yeah, the Phil Hare tweets just come through. Oh, but, um, and everything. Oh Jesus. my God! Don't. don't oh don't, don't, no don't, don't. way! I was literally oh, like, I was gonna, I was gonna cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sorry, I, I, I like the last few seconds. I've just been sat here wallowing, <laughs> just like kind of half listening to you, but also been like, for fuck's sake. I was. It's hard to read when at the same time my mind is completely split. Yeah. Well, this is it. Let's just, let's just, let's just wait five seconds to see this game finish <laughs> for fuck's sake oh no don't don't my 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 backside can't take it my backside can't take it i was like we're down uh, in my head we were down at that point yeah i can't in my, in my head in my head i've been like that for a while <laughs> yeah I've, I've sort of accepted it in, in, a, in a way i'm trying to say that to myself to stop to not make it as like bad when it happens i could not take a last day of the season relegation yeah i'm the same i have to i'm almost like i i'm enjoying my monday to friday and then when the weekend comes it's like oh my god this is gonna be so annoying it just proper smacks, smacks <laughs> me i think it's it's football i don't know what it is i wouldn't consider myself a massive fan yeah the same with england yeah but it was i think like when Leeds were crap in the championship, it was easy to be kind of like, well, a bit apathetic to it all. I know, yeah, it's the hope. It is the hope that kills you. There's the reason people say it. It is. It's the hope that kills you. It's, they start to do well, and then you you think, oh, great, and then they didn't really do shit. <laughs> oh my god, I still can't take it. I'm sorry. It's just this is killing me. I fucking hate football, me. I honestly do. <laughs> my life would be so much better without it. <laughs>